You can be seated. Glad you're here today. I am David. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And uh, so glad you're here. I, uh, I work here. So what that means is you are in a co-working space and my job is to run that co-working space. It's a separate nonprofit entity and uh, we have dedicated offices and dedicated desks and event space and this kind of thing. And so my day-to-day job is, is running uh, this space, trying to grow the organization and that kind of thing. And we do events. We do lots of different kinds of events. We had a company here uh, just a couple weeks ago that was in the security space and they had a day and a half meeting, a bunch of people here, multiple rooms rooms, served them different catering meals and this kind of thing. And uh, they were a great group. They were really fun to kind of be with. And they were just really, they were really cool. And at the end of it, one of the guys came up and he says, hey man, I like this music that's playing here. Tell me more about the music. And, um, and so we developed a connection about the music. He actually knew some of the soundtrack that I was playing. And I didn't think anybody, you know, knew this thing. So we had a little connection. And I said, well, hey, man, what's your name? I'm David Edmonds. And he said, David Edmonds? He said, my granddad is David Edmonds. And that's Steve Edmonds over there. And that's John Edmonds over there. I said, my son's John Edmonds. He's like, oh, great. And so we had this whole Edmonds party, you know. And, uh, and our name is spelled a little bit differently. And where I've come from on the East Coast, there's not a lot of the Edmonds with a U. So we started connecting and uh, and so he said, do you know where, you know, your ancestors are from? And I said, yeah, I mean, I did a project in eighth grade or something, maybe Wales or something like that. He's like, yeah, Wales, Utah, that's where we're all from. I said, there's a Wales, Utah? I, I, th- I thought it was like over toward England, in England, by England, part of England. And uh, he says, no, Wales, Utah, first-hand carts, came here and something, something, something. And he started telling me all this story. Hey, John, Steve, come over here. And he started bringing the whole Edmonds clan over to greet their long-lost relative. Um, and they started asking me about, you know, who I was connected to and all this kind of stuff and, and kind of an inquisition on my, on my genealogical knowledge, which there's very little of. And they seemed astonished that I hadn't yet spit in a cup and given it to a tech company to go examine my DNA to uh, tell me where I come from. That's just weird to me. I don't know. But uh, this is important stuff for many people. And it was really important to them. And at the end of the whole thing, I took a picture of the guy and whatever, and they kind of were like, okay, this guy, he's not really a legit Edmonds because he doesn't know really where we're from, this kind of thing. But it was fun. And uh, I showed it to my wife, who's like a, like could be like a facial recognition expert with the CIA if there were such a thing before AI and all that kind of stuff. And I showed her the picture. She said, oh yeah, you look, you pretty much look like him. Uh, so anyway, I had a fun time with it. But this is, you know, who are we is a very important question for a lot of people. And it's so important that if you drive up into the canyon, Big Cottonwood Canyon, uh, there's a big facility there behind doors designed to withstand a nuclear strike through tunnels blasted 600 feet down into the rock in a vault that's another 700 feet down. And there's a, there's a treasure trove down there, not of gold, but of genealogical records. And the, it has to be down deep and that protected or whatever because of humidity and this kind of thing. And it's kind of a big deal. And uh, actually, one of the companies that came here one time uh, sold other storage space in this place. Uh, so it's kind of a cool concept. It's like a James Bond lair right here in, in Big Cottonwood Canyon. Uh, but the point of it is to store these records. 
And New York Magazine found this very interesting and really did a deep dive. And they called it originally when they published it, Ancestor Worship. And they went through all of the kind of the histories of different people groups around the world and what they thought about ancestors and this kind of thing. And uh, they, they figured out one of the things in this article was that, it's, uh, that genealogical research is the second most popular search category online after porn. <laughs> Uh, those claims should be sprinkled with a few grains of salt, they say, but more than 26 million people have taken genetic ancestry tests since 2012. It's created this huge database and, and a thing of value for pharmaceutical companies and, and law enforcement. 23andMe went public with a market cap valuation of $3.5 billion. The behemoth ancestry boasts more than 3 million subscribers and the nation's largest genetic database, which was purchased for 4.7 billion in 2020. So according to this piece in the New Yorker, uh, these origin stories provide collective accounts of where we come from, but they also help some lineages claim power over others. And they went into this whole deep dive about all this. I thought it was interesting because I think that people spend a lot of time and effort and money to determine who they are. You got this PBS show that is, is investigating your roots and those are cool to see. And, but people are very invested in this idea. Who am I? So we're going to dig into that a little bit today. Am I, the, am I the sum of all the DNA strands that led to me? Well, we want to explore this idea because from a biblical perspective, knowing who you are and whose you are is critical to this, to having unshakable confidence. That's our series that we've been going through in 1 John. And so we're going to look at 1 John today. If you have a Bible, you can turn or tap your way to 1 John 2, 28 through 310 is about where we'll be today. If you don't have one, we would love to give you a modern English translation Bible, an ESV we have out here on the front thing. We just like to gift that to you so that you have a, uh, have a Bible and can follow along and know where we're getting these things from. Wondering who we are is, is critical. So we want to know what the Bible uh, says about it. And throughout this letter of 1 John uh, that we've been studying, Ben's been preaching on, we have, have these circular themes that keep coming back. This, this letter of John, does, is not, it's not linear. It doesn't start in one place and go and take you different places and tell you what to do. It's really thematic and it keeps coming back to some of these same themes that can be pretty intense. He talks about darkness and light, heaven and hell, Christ and Antichrist, Jesus and the devil. Uh, pretty intense stuff, but it's, it's helpful, I think, that, that's, that there's not a lot of nuance in this, in this letter because we live in weird times, that, are, that ambiguity is everywhere and chaos ensues. But the sweet thing about who God is and the way he speaks to us through John's letter is that there's this beautiful refrain that says, little children. In, John, in 1 John 2, 1, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In 1 John 2, 7, he says, beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. In 1 John 2, 18, he says, children, it is the last hour. Something kind of intense, but children, it's the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 
Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So at the time that John is writing this, he's like the elder statesman of the early Christian church. He was likely in his 80s uh, when he wrote this letter. God knew that he was, God knew what he was doing when he was, when he was inspiring John to write. He knew that this would be in scripture. And it's kind of a theological treatise, like a lot of John's uh, other writing, the other letters and Revelation, the Gospel of John. This is the same John who laid up on Jesus' shoulder at the last uh, supper. This is the same John who stood at the foot of the cross with Mary as Jesus gave the care of his mother into John's hands. This is the same John who outran Peter to see the empty tomb on Easter morning. This is the same John who sat and ate breakfast uh, by a fire that the resurrected Jesus had kindled. So he knew Jesus as well as anyone. Uh, He's qualified. He's qualified to speak of what he had seen and heard. This is eyewitness testimony. And so it's really, uh, the other thing we know is that he wrote this in the, about the 90s. Um, so this would have been about 60 years after uh, Jesus' ascension. And we know he wrote it then because it, it's, he's quoted, this letter is quoted in the hundreds. And so it's just bad scholarship to say that these things were written hundreds of years after. This is eyewitness testimony. John's got a right to say it. He was with Jesus physically. He heard from Jesus spiritually. He got a direct revelation from Jesus after his ascension. He's qualified, so we should listen to him. Uh, He's probably living in Ephesus at the time, and he's the longest living apostle. So he's got something to say, and it kind of reflects Jesus' heart for us, the Father's heart for us, in a fatherly way. John is addressing uh, the believers like God addresses us. Um, and that just should give us great confidence. Uh, this verse, uh, this first one that we have in this passage, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is what we want. We want confidence, not shame. So this verse addresses who you are, what you do in light of who you are, and then kind of when you do it. So we're going to give these three concepts one word headlines. So paternity is the first. God's paternity paternity is kind of who we are. Uh, Our activity, activity is what we do in light of that. And then kind of immediacy or ultimate immediacy is when we're supposed to do it. So first, John addresses the who. He establishes paternity. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So, John introduces us to God the Father. Now, John wasn't the first. Jesus introduces us to the Father. Jesus is the full, visible representation of the Father. Uh, But the world doesn't know him, and that's still true today. Really, more importantly, whether the world knows him, though, is whether we know him. And do you really know who the Father is? So, for the purposes of this illustration, we're going to call this a paternity test. Now, the problem with this uh, illustration and that, those words is that you're immediately going to have in your mind like a Maury Povich gotcha show where he says, you are not the father. Paternity test came back. Ah, not the father. Or you are the father. Ah, you know, they freak out. Now, the problem with that is you, now you got to get rid of that image. I just put it in your mind. Now you got to get it out because this paternity test 
doesn't lead you to be like freaking out and have, have anxiety, but hopefully it's a conclusive determination of who you are in Christ and give you, giving you this unshakable confidence. So first order priority is that God doesn't have to prove who he is, um, but he's gracious to do so. He's done so on the cross. He's done so in the word. He's done so in his miraculous acts throughout the millennia. Uh, but the scandal is not with God, but with a world that rejects who he says he is. This paternity test is really pointing to us. So our text today is focused on the most important and urgent question, whose child are you? So for this test, we'll look at both the father and the son, and we'll see if, if we are his child. Is he your father? John tells us that these things we can know for sure. These are fixed realities that can give us this confidence. We can know these absolute truths. If you believe in absolute truths, if you believe that God's word is true, if you believe he's good and he loves you and he can deliver you absolute truth, or you can choose to reject these absolute truths and just live in a world of chaos and confusion and pain. But the paternity test has one true answer. There's only one father and you're either growing up in him, in his family, abiding in his home and headed to a specific home address that Jesus has promised and is preparing for you, or you're not headed home. And you have the opportunity today to kind of end route on your GPS on your phone, end route and put in the right address. And that's good news. So I love the clarity of John's writing in this, in this first verse of chapter three, where he says, and so we are. This is, this is God saying, hey, we're called children of God, uh, God and, and we are. He's writing this to early Christians with the assumption that, hey, you're following God. Now, this is God's declaration over us. God has revealed himself in person through Jesus and his word. So if you want to be considered a child of God, you have to have the right dad, so to speak. There are people out there that would challenge the identity of God as revealed in the Bible. The way God speaks to us. How do we know who God is? Is it just the way we think about God? Okay, well, I'm going to think about God as a wizard of Oz. Well, that would be the wrong image. That's an image of your creation or Hollywood's creation. I'm going to believe in a God who doesn't believe in war. Or I'm going to believe in a God who fill in the blank. How, what... Are you making God in your image or is the world making God in its image? Or is God telling us who he is? Is he revealing in his word who he is? Some might say that father is an inappropriate word for God because God can't have a son. To utter the phrase Jesus, son of God, was at once blasphemy to Jews and tyranny to Romans, just as it is today in the Muslim world. So to hear Jesus say in John 10, I and the father are one, made Jews pick up stones. So God is Father and Jesus is the Son. Is, it's a hotly contested truth. We don't hear it much in Western culture, um, but it's contested only if you don't believe what Jesus says. So this is what he says in John 10, 36. <clears throat> Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? <clears throat> Excuse me. Because I said, I'm the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. 
Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Again, in John 14, Jesus says, Philip asked him a question, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Show us the Father. And he says, you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works. So Jesus is confirming that he is one with the Father and that God the Father has a God the Son. If you want to be a part of the family of God, you have to recognize those realities, receive those realities as true and good and beautiful, but not everybody does. Elliot Clark is a guy who uh, Ben and I actually went to uh, seminary, our master's program together uh, with, and he's a, he's a missionary in Muslim context and an author. He's written, written some books. But he says this, to understand Jesus as son is to understand the spiritual adoption of the believer, the relationship of God as heavenly father, its implications for our obedience as sons, the brotherhood of the saints, the privilege of childlike prayer, and the gifts and rights of our inheritance. It is to understand the Christian faith. Adoption is the Christian faith. And it's the focus of our passage today. It's central. Even though that word's not used, so I'll give you a verse where the word is used. Ephesians 1, 5 says, He predestined us. You might not like that word either. We can talk about that later. Different sermon. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. This is a beautiful act of God, and it is the heart of God. This is not just a side project. This is not just a a small little thing for the church. I mean, we we need to really understand this. Um, But in Western civilization, we've got, yes, those in other places that would deny God has a son and all that. But in Western civilization, you'll a lot of times hear people say, well, we're all children of God. Well, uh, that's not biblical. It's not universal and it's not biblical. I mean, it's not biblical because we're not natural born children of God. These verses in the entirety of Scripture point to a, a different, more beautiful reality. John chapter 1, 12, <clears throat> but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're getting this concept of being born again and adoption straight out of Scripture. And also, this isn't a universal thought. Um, Islam has 99 names for Allah, and none of them are Father. The Jews of Jesus' time were so uncomfortable with the concept of God that, you know, they picked up rocks, and they said that this is why Jesus should be crucified. So why is that? Because we've gotten so comfortable with this word Father, why is it so offensive to so many people? Well... In their defense, they would say, because God is holy. And the idea of a holy God stooping down and having some uh, really weird relationship with a human, that tears the fabric of God's holiness. That's what the kind of the Greek pantheon of gods did. But we as Christians are not of those who would say God is bound up as a biological entity and he has consummated some kind of sexual relationship to produce children. Uh, It's a relational reality and a mystery much bigger than a biological reality. This is a blood test. 
But it's different. It's not about blood type. It's about Christ's blood shed for you that makes you a son, not a biological reality. That's why God has communicated to us in the Bible the, the, the truth of the virgin birth. Christmas is coming. We're going to sing about this beautiful incarnation of Christ. We're going to sing about the virgin birth. But this was not new when Jesus showed up in Isaiah 9, verse 6. This is 700 years before God the Son arrives on the scene as Jesus. And the Bible shows us that this is the predicted Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who Jesus is. He's one. He's going to be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Think Holy Spirit language. The entirety of Scripture points to a Holy Father God who is one and one with God, the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So our text today says that there is something that's changed in this kind of adoption child of God scenario. There's a, there's a timeline to it. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And there's two good things about that. It means that we once weren't and now we are and that we can experience the privileges of sonship right now. Uh, We don't have to wait until heaven. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We'll have resurrection bodies. That's what this verse is talking about. We will be like him. Jesus and like God the Father, not identical twins of. There's still a subordinate relationship there. He's still God the creator. We're still the creation. But we'll have a resurrected body like Jesus' resurrected body. He could eat food and walk through doors. I mean, there's going to be some mystery and beauty that we don't even know about. And so we will be like him. We will reflect the Father's image. We will, we will show that we are his children at that point. So... Those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ Jesus are now children of God. So it's also should be called. There's a future tense to this verse. I mean, something has changed. It's, it's a gift. Adoption is a gift. And it's a privilege. It's not a birthright. Oftentimes, the images of our minds of adoption are, um, are babies. Like people will put a GoFundMe page up and they'll be adopting some baby, maybe from a foreign country. And we get really excited and we do fundraisers and we help raise money and we applaud all that and we'll do all that. But oftentimes, too often, we, we silo our minds into thinking about just infant adoption. Uh, but in the Roman law at the time, it's really all about adoption as an adult. So I want you to think about this a little bit. The word adoption and the concept of adoption in Roman law all pointed to placing as sons adults. And the reason it needed to happen, because if a Roman emperor had sons that were unfit for duty, that Roman emperor could survey his people, he could find his most most faithful servant, he could go to his bravest warrior, and he could place that individual legally as a son so that he would inherit the throne and all that that means. And uh, as a matter of fact, Augustus, Tiberius, Nero were all picked this way. And... uh, it's interesting that the, that the Roman idea of adoption, uh, placing as sons, helps us understand what God is doing. However, 
in Rome, they're looking for the best and the brightest. It's the best warrior. It's the best guy. In Christ, he goes to the lowest. He goes to the neediest. He goes to the sickest. He does not go to the best and the brightest. Uh, because of his love for us. There's nothing that we have done. We have not uh, achieved adoption status by our heroics. God is the hero of the story, not us. And he's come to us, and it's this beautiful gift. It's this invitation to become the fa- a part of his family. So we can call God Father because the Son does what he does on the cross. And we can be found in the Son the Son is the hero. So we can be found with all the rights and privileges of the Son as the Father sees us. So Jesus alone holds the key to adoption, and this is an invitation to become his family. One of the happiest and proudest days of my life was December 27th, 2017. That was six years ago. And six years ago, there's a picture, I think, of us six years ago. That's my family, my wife, and my uh, seven kids. One of those children is adopted. The guy that's sitting in the chair with all the kids sitting on his lap. And John doesn't look very happy in that picture. But they were. It was a happy day. And Levi had already been in our home for two years. We had already expressed to him at the age of 16 that we loved him, that we wanted him, that he was part of our forever family, that we were going to do whatever it took to make sure he had a great life. And we loved him. And, uh, and, but initially, we, there were all kinds of legal things that happened. And we were ultimately waiting until he was 18 before any kind of legal distinction occurred. But that didn't change our love for him. We loved him, just like the father loves us. But at some point, he came to us after he turned 18, even before he turned 18, and said, I want to be in Edmonds. It's my choice. And so in the same way as the Father loves us, at some point we've got to say whether we want to be in relationship with the Father. Do we want to make this adoption legal? It doesn't change the love of the Father. It didn't change our love as a family to have documentation, but it certainly made it legal, and he had to, he had to choose that. The judge on this day wrote up a new birth certificate. His old birth certificate was no longer legal His new birth certificate says that Rhonda and I are his parents, legally, truthfully, in total earnestness. And the Father does that for us. So, this paternity question, this whole letter, this whole passage of Scripture is written to confirm your sonship and remind you whose you are. So, With Levi, there was a lot of paperwork, but because he was 18, he had to do it. We couldn't actually do it for him because he was 18. And if you've got teenagers and ever tried to send one to the Social Security Administration, good luck. The DMV, the Office of Vital Records, I don't know, where is that? And so there was a long, it actually took him several years before his name actually appeared on the driver's license as an Edmonds. But how do we know he's our son? We know he's our son because he comes home. He lives with us. He dwells with us. He plays with his siblings. He loves us. We love him. He comes home. So there is some activity that confirms the paternity that we as children also participate. So John, uh, 
John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So we abide in him. He abides with us. The good news is he comes to us. We don't have to climb our way to him. He comes to us and makes his home with us because we've said we want to be with him. We want to be one with him. So the adoption is a gift. But those that are adopted have to choose. They have to stay home. And if they do that, they're going to act. They're going to begin to take on the traits and characteristics of mom and dad and the siblings. They're going to tell the same jokes and they're going to sound the same. They're going to eat the same foods. And so this closeness, this oneness, this nearness means that we participate. There is activity on our part. We're choosing certain things, even though God in his goodness has chosen us. So quickly, the second point on activity, and we'll just spend a moment here. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's something we can do. How? Well, we don't make a practice of sinning because in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This can really freak out a lot of people. Oh gosh, sinlessness. Just focus on the practice sinning piece. What does it mean to practice sinning? What does it mean to practice godliness? When you read your Bible and you love each other and you spend time in his word and you serve other people, you're practicing righteousness. You're practicing uh, godliness. I mean, what, what does practice even mean? Well, it means you try, and then you fail, and then you learn, and then you emulate, and then you try again, and you succeed, and you repeat it, and you listen, and you obey, you fail again, and then you're forgiven again, and you repent, and you try again. That is the Christian life. Your justification, your adoption day has already been made secure, but you're going to walk in Him because of that security, because of that confidence. So... It's definitely not perfection, but remember, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So we're going to try. And by God's grace, he's going to deliver us to himself. And we're going to act like his children. Again, don't miss this. Jesus came to take away our sins. The action is done for you. This is not a list of do's and don'ts. All my note checker, check box checking people, not a list of do's and don'ts. It's already been done. Jesus says it is finished as he has hung on the cross. He's accomplished everything for you. So practice righteousness. Do we abide in him? Do we obey him? Do we love our siblings? The beauty of the gospel is that we don't work our way back home to him. He comes to us. Remember that. But we live together. We start acting like each other. Because the Father forgives, I can forgive. Our community group is going through a book on forgiveness right now. Boy, do I need it. We have copies of it right up here in front. Are you forgiving your brother and sister? The father goes after the lost one. Should I join him in that effort? Am I joining him in that effort? The father sacrifices, so I sacrifice. Jesus gives me new friends and family through adoption. And how am I mirroring that same thing? So when we pray here in just a minute, I want you to ask yourself, what is God asking me to do today? What kind of activity as a child of God is God asking me to do? Or if I'm not yet adopted, what is he asking of me? There's next steps. We talk about next steps all the time. 
Now, finally, and I'll just briefly say this, there is immediacy all through John. There's ultimate immediacy, kind of a personal urgency throughout this letter, and it, it wraps up in 7 through 10 by saying, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. The Holy Spirit, God himself, is abiding in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and moves you away. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, we don't have time to talk about the devil a whole lot, but that's a reality. There's an enemy fighting against you. He also slips in this love of brother real quick. Oh, man, maybe I had it until we got into the love of brother. With six kids in the home now, they fight. And there's all kinds of scrapping over clothes and over food and over couch space and over all kinds of issues. And I take that personally. When they're fighting, it hurts me as a father. So God wants us to love our brother. I mean, this is not just academics. It's all about relationships. We're supposed to take this personally. And uh, man, I got so much more to share, but I'll end with this. Uh, I would just encourage you to reconsider your relationships. Reconsider family, biological family, as you have conceived it, and whether that is exclusively the most important thing. God put his own son in jeopardy for you. So he sacrifices his family security to bring you in. Consider opening up your home in new ways for the gospel. Invite your neighbor over finally for the dinner that you've been talking about for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Treat other brothers and sisters in Christ as eternal friends. Love one another. Forgive. Dwell with each other. And then ask God, why should you not adopt? Maybe that's what God has for you in a real sense. And so when we pray in a second, I want you to listen to him. I want you to ask him these questions. And then I'll, I'll encourage you with one last verse and story and we're done. Matthew 19, 29 is a, is a verse that Rhonda and I have gotten a lot of comfort from. We moved out here 10 years ago and when we did, we left all of our biological family uh, on the East Coast. And we took a lot of comfort because Jesus promises everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And we've looked to this promise, we prayed for this promise, we've uh, gotten to receive this promise in different kinds of ways, uh, but it's never, you know, it's, 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 it's never exactly like we hope until we get home with Jesus. And year after year, soccer games have gone by and there's no grandparents, and track meets have gone by and there's no grandparents, and uh, playing Legos on the floor, coloring has not been a grandparent thing for my kids. They haven't really known that. But I got to taste something the other day that really uh, brought this home and fulfilled God's promises. Uh, <clears throat> my daughter uh, is finishing up her senior year, and it's, it was her last uh, cross-country high school race. And I told my friend Mark Botcher about it at community group. Mark and Barb and their family, Jen, who was singing here, and her husband, they all moved here about a year ago, and they're part of our community group. I told him about it. He said, what time and where? I told him, and he came out there, and he ran around the course with Rhonda, and he cheered on my daughter. And uh, 
the, the kind of things I'd hoped from, from a grandparent. And here was God ultimately fulfilling this promise in our lives through you. And uh, that's what the beauty of the family of God is all about. Yes, we love our biological families, but God has given us so much more in, in Christ Jesus. So I just encourage you to want that if you don't have it, to want community, to want adoption, to want to expand the kingdom of God and to enjoy uh, his community of adoption together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, for your adoption in Christ Jesus. I thank you for the new family that you've given us, God. I thank you for fulfilling all of your promises that we are now now, children of God. And so, God, I do pray that we would act that way, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that we would expand our sibling group, that we would ad- adopt legally and, other, and in relational ways, and that we would love each other in a way that glorifies you and brings honor to your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.